Welcome to Black and Green Podcast number six. It is April 7th, 2018, and this is Kevin Tucker, and I am here with Yank tonight, and we are going to be talking about all kinds of anti-civ things. So just to start out, I know that the uh, podcast can sometimes get kind of long, and uh, if you're anything like me, if you're listening to a podcast and you don't get to the end, you probably won't get back to it. So I'm going to do it a little different this time. I'm going to put the end matter up front. Uh, if you ever have any questions or anything for uh, the podcast, you can email that to blackandgreenpress at gmail.com. That's blackandgreenpress at gmail.com. There's a form on the website, which is blackandgreenreview.org for the past podcast, sorry, past podcasts and then uh, contacts and stuff like that. Uh, so if you have any questions, you can send them in there and then uh, maybe I'll read or respond to them on the podcast. Also, the uh, Sport Black and Green Press, Sport Black and Green, everything we do, our two newest books are Black and Green Review number five and my book, uh, Gathered Remains, which is a collection of essays. Both those are new. And then Freddie Perlman's Anything Can Happen is a new one as well. Those are up on the website, web store, more information. And we'll go on about it. But obviously, if you support what we do, that's great. Also, if you support what we do, uh, if you can donate by Patreon or PayPal, both links are on the blackandgreenreview.org site with the podcast tab. Uh, and uh, we get where we're at because of donations. So it's a huge, huge help. And we have a lot in the works for this year. So uh, any support there really makes a big difference. All right. And that's out of the way. So first I want to talk a little bit about this email. I'm sorry, this essay that uh, Gabe Bradshaw, who wrote Carnivore Minds, Elephants on the Edge. I've talked about it repeatedly, and I'm going to continue talking about it repeatedly because those books are great. Uh, but she sent this to me, and it's insane. Uh, so this piece, Why We Should Genetically Disenhance Animals Used in Factory Farms, was an undergraduate essay that won a prize called the Oxford Uhero Prize from the University of Oxford in Practical Ethics. <clears throat> so, uh, that should make it seem like it's not such a big deal. Um, in a, in a sense, it's just some, uh, ethics, philosophical bullshit, uh, or whatever kind of presenting a situation, some word given to an undergraduate student, something like that. But this is actually a thing as it turns out, which is totally insane. And I don't know where the whole issue is in, is really at, uh, how much it's possible that's going to be done. But the fact that this is a discussion, the fact that this is something that people are working on or discussing, uh, it's not so surprising that philosophers would look at this and say, you know, Oh, this, this hits all of our utilitarian bullshit or whatever. Not too surprising, but it is actually something they're talking about. And I think it says a lot about civilization in general. So I'm going to read a little bit of it here. Currently, the factory farming of livestock animals for human consumption causes a great amount of suffering in those animals. It is widely acknowledged that the conditions many animals face in factory farms are important. Furthermore, for factory farm meat, it's increasing worldwide as developing economies grow more affluent. This will lead to more animals suffering in factory farms in the future. One potential solution to the problem is that disenhancement of livestock animals. Disenhancement is a genetic modification that removes any animal's cap capacity to feel pain. 
Scientists hope to be able to do this without inflicting any pain at all. So, disenhancement promises to reduce suffering in factory-farmed animals by removing their capacity to feel pain caused by their terrible environment. End quote. So, that's fucking crazy. Um, and uh, it says a lot about civilization to me, that the idea that, uh, you know, this philosophical approach of saying what is ethical would come down to, well, you know, we're not going to change any of this. Uh, we're just going to find a way to make it so that it's less harsh on animals because we think that we can just kind of shut them down and treat animals like machines, which is what science and philosophers typically have done for the most part. Um, but, you know, it, it's insane. And the idea that factory farming can go on or should go on forever, of course, is a whole other thing. And uh, I'm certainly not vegan, but um, if people think that the only way that you can eat meat is by eating factory farm meat, which is not true. Uh, I can understand why people would be vegan. Uh, and certainly this kind of approach isn't, or hopefully isn't going to be convincing anybody else otherwise. But yeah, there's just all this uh, kind of philosophical nonsense. I'm not going to go into it in too much detail, but it's something that I think should have attention drawn to it and it should be looked at of just saying, you know, we can just take their pain away which is a, a weird kind of way of saying it's like, well, we recognize sentience. We recognize that they are capable of feeling pain. Uh, we just don't really give t- two shits about it. So that's fucked up. So jumping to the next subject here, we watched the documentary Atomic Homefront today. Um, you can find it online. Uh, I don't need to tell a bunch of nerdy podcast listeners how to find something online, I'm sure. But uh, it's worth checking out. Um, you know, It's one of these things that, of course, is not anti-civ in any direct way or anything like that but uh it does talk about very serious issues within civilization and unacknowledged as a problem of civilization in and of itself even within the documentary but it's still important to take note of and it's about a uh landfill called westlake in bridgeton hazelton uh the st louis suburb so it's not particularly far from here it's about too far from, two hours from where we're at uh, and they have been dumping uh, all kinds of radioactive waste there, uh, and there is a massive fire underneath the other side of the landfill. So I'm going to take uh, hand this over to Yank for a second to talk a little bit about that. Oh, I'm more going to cover just the history of how this even came to be um, after you're done adjusting this in my face. Thanks. Always on the lookout for a second mic. Okay. Um, anyway, so long story short, um, during World War II, the U.S. sent spies into the Congo, and that, and they from there they obtained um, the world's purest uranium, and it was shipped directly to a company called Malincrat or Malincrat Chemical Works in St. Louis, and it was processed there in very large quantities. Um, they also produced 2 million cubic yards of contaminated waste. And the Atomic Energy Commission sold select residue to a company called Coffer Corp, based out of Colorado. And it um, was further processed, and they didn't have proper disposal plan, a, a, a proper disposal plan. And um, so they eventually ended up mixing it with dirt, and over a three-month period, they dumped it. And into uh, Westlake landfill, and you know, the companies are, are actually listed as 
uh, being having sites that are that are the most radioactive areas in you know, you know the United States. So you can imagine how toxic this area is, and a lot of people are suffering due to it. So. So the actual dump, the landfill there, is in people's backyards, and they had no real warning about it. They had no real indication of anything that was going on there until it caught on fire. And once it caught on fire, uh, it it started to smell horribly uh, and then impact all these people's health. So a couple of things going back here with Malincrot. Uh, they're a British company. Uh, they had a headquarters in St. Louis. And, uh, they, a lot of people who work there, it's kind of crazy when you see in the documentary, a lot of the people who were working there, working with uranium, they're just like rubber gloves and a fucking visor kind of thing. It's, it's pathetic. Needless to say, a lot, if not most of those people died of cancer, um, and various kinds of cancer. And a lot of the people living around this landfill, a lot of people on any kind of path along this Creek, uh, water Creek that goes outside of the landfill. Um, the kids who played with it as children or the, the adults who played with it as children are all having all these kinds of insane forms of cancer. Um, rare cancers too. Rare. Yeah. Rare cancers. Um, so (coughs) Malincrot still exists. Uh, all that stuff that was the being done for the Manhattan project. Um, obviously it's not going on there anymore. I, and I'm not really honestly too sure if it still exists in St. Louis, but we can go ahead and cop it up to uh, one of the many glorious bastards of production and industry that were headquartered in St. Louis, which includes Peabody Coal, Monsanto, just to name a few. Uh, but I, I was just gonna, I was gonna say, I'm not sure if I said Coffer, the Coffer company, or it's you, Cotter. You did, you said Coffer, okay, and it is well, Cotter. It's, it's Cotter, yeah. I just thought of that. I think I, I, uh, you know, was wrong about the name. And in fact, you were. But anyways, correction made. We're not going to edit it. So uh, Mellencrot just continuing to be um, uh, a horrible group of people. Uh, they are now, as, and I assume they might have always been, uh, Mellencrot Pharmaceuticals. Uh, pretty much everything they have in the processes right now, or in the works right now, is a British company, is some form of medical deal. And I, I haven't gone through this list extensively, but is it on their website? And uh, a lot of this stuff has to do with things like, here's one, it's called Stratagraft. Uh, and it's meant to create uh, genetically engineered human skin for burn victims. Uh, and there's a couple more graft ones on here, but this kind of, where it's humanitarian act yeah these are these people apparently always have been great and aspired to nothing but greatness um so yeah they're they're fucking people up and you know what they're making graphs that are anti-tumor graphs for yeah yeah, uh, express graft is the first genetically engineered human skin substitute in development that expresses therapeutic proteins and may help reduce infection and accelerate wound healing based on preclinical research the anti-tumor properties of express graft provides sustained expression of human IL-12 and may suppress the growth of human skin cancer and secrete wound healing factors that may stimulate tissue regeneration. God. So so can they, um, you know, do something for the people that they 
helped give cancer to? Funny you should ask, because these are all in preclinical stages. So those people might expire in the meantime. But lo and behold, the future generations that they poison with their earlier endeavors and that they, the ones I'm sure they're still involved in, uh, there will be many benefits for them. They're a caring company through and through. They'll give you cancer, and then they'll give you a skin graft Yay. for a nominal fee uh, upon, you know, Getting cancer if you don't just die right away. Uh, and then going back to the Cotter Corporation. <clears throat> so, Coffer. not Coffer. C O T T E R. Uh, they, in in the documentary in the Atomic Homefront, it kind of made it seem like they were uh, a transportation company, which is not the case. They're a metal mining and milling operation based in the United States, based out of Englewood, Colorado. Uh, produce such great things as uranium. Vandium, molybdenum, silver, lead, zinc, copper, selenium, nickel, cobalt, tungsten, and limestone. So they're an also great company, as I'm sure you can imagine. Uh, they're under the umbrella of General Atomics. Uh, so General Atomics makes has a number of branches, everything from General Atomics Aeronautical Systems who actually make the Predator drone, as in Obama's favorite uh, tool of warfare. Uh, they go down to Cotter. Uh, they cover, there's a Converdyne, which is a basically uranium peddling uh, research and development company. Uh, they've got their hands in pretty much everything. They've got some mines, uh, uranium mines in South Australia. Uh, pretty much everywhere. Rio Grande. So great people. There's one in German here. Uh, yeah. So all around shitheads, uh, behind all these copper mines and still very, very much in existence. Um, but you know, I, there's a, a lot of that stuff that's not really touched, um, in all of the documentary, of course. And it's, it's more of a, not my backyard kind of deal. But at the same time, when your children are dying of cancer. But but currently, their their whole thing is they're trying to have the um, the Army Corps of Engineers take over the whole thing. They want the to be taken from the EPA because they know that the Army of Engineers will most likely do something about it. But their whole thing is they want to remove all this, you know, nuclear weapon waste. <clears throat> and they wanted to carry it off somewhere else. And in reality, I think that's bullshit. I mean, it shouldn't be anywhere. And I, I think digging it up is not a very smart move. Um, I think the best thing that these people could do is if they could, if the government would just give them a buyout and just leave and desert the area, because I mean that it's, it's kind of, it's they're They're not admitting it, but I mean, if you look at the data, the, it's most likely it's burning and it's most likely already hit the uranium um, waste. So I, I really think the area should be abandoned. I don't, I don't know why they're fucking around. I mean, there's even there's car systems underneath this. It could cave in. It could cause a huge. I mean, if this fire were to um, breach the surface, you're going to have, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't even know what to say about it. It's kind of mind blowing really. And, and yeah, I don't, I think the area needs to be cleared. The people need to move. And the biggest thing, so 
it's I, I know it's uranium, I think thadium, uh radium. I, I can't remember exactly, I was kinda of looking. But uh yeah, so the follow up to the whole thing has been I mean pathetic really in terms of like showing how, how things go and it's an area it's not an affluent area, which a lot of St. Louis's suburbs are. It's also it's not too far from Ferguson and Florissant and there's a lot of issues going back throughout that entire area and uh, it's a north county st louis and going up to north side st louis where there have also been huge issues in terms of um in, in north side in particular uh just uh there was a medical waste incinerator and i believe still is an operation there i mean, just a whole history of not giving a fuck and right along the mississippi river there uh it is nothing but refineries malincrot's old headquarters were right by there um, and I went to school in North high school in North city, St. Louis, and it's an exceptionally violent area in East St. Louis, um, right across the river, uh, in Illinois is exceptionally, exceptionally violent. And so that's where you also get, um, Cahokia, which is about 50 miles in. Um, and so it's kind of ironic. You go out to Cahokia, uh, and you're seeing a dead civilization in the heart of a dying one. Uh, but there, there's a lot of stuff is, is, far as you know naturally this stuff is happening in areas where there's huge economic inequality uh just kind of trophic cascading of of civilization and particular like capitalist interest in how how all this shit really runs downhill and out into wastewater uh, so they're they're doing a lot of shit and they're not really i don't know i mean you see the same kind of bullshit really the way that the EPA was talking about it, the way that the representatives in the area was talking about it, certainly the ways that the corporations were talking about it, uh, they won't be bothered to admit or acknowledge any kind of um, issue. Really, they they won't even admit that they they pretty much deny that it's an issue. Uh, not pretty much. I mean, they they completely deny it, and then they completely surprise, deny. Surprise! 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 The EPA denies. Yeah, so they <laughs> deny any causation. Uh, and anybody who wants to be, um, you know, kind of a liberal idiot about all this thing, it's like, ah, oh, it's all Trump or whatever. It's like, this has been going on for a long time. And it was under Obama that a lot of this, that the fires started happening. It's um, 2010. Yeah, going back to 2010. And so now it, it looks like Scott Pruitt is actually talking about giving this attention, I think, because mm-hmm. of the documentary. <laughs> no. uh, but he's, yeah, I mean, they got it's no funds for it. Too. Yeah, of course they're all full of shit. They're fucking. Yeah, but he, yeah. But, yeah. yeah. We agree. They are assholes. Uh, but you see the same kind of shit as in terms of when they were talking about fracking in Pennsylvania and all the areas where that's happening. Just this, this isn't our fault. This isn't our fault. This has nothing to do with us. And no amount of indications and people showing there was, they were able to stamp in the people's basements and uh, the people's houses in the neighboring areas that the particular um, uranium that was coming into their houses and have been found in their houses came from this dump had been that particular uranium that Mallinckrodt had used from the Congo, from the Congo. So indisputable. Uh, but you know, I mean, it's important to see this because it's important to have to acknowledge and confront all the ways in which civilization just fucks everything up. All the ways that this is fucked up. These kids were playing in a fucking Creek, uh, the Spanish Lake neighborhood, um, yeah, Yank and I actually went out there last year. We'd heard about some rail spots and it's like yeah. kind of fucking glad we didn't really find anything out yeah. there. Um, and you know, just talk to people that are out there just fishing in the lakes and everything. It's, uh-huh. it's, 
areas where the soil is endemically contaminated. And all of this goes into the Mississippi. So the entirety of this area is, is uh, floodplains and then low lying hills around it. Um, and, and really, I think I think that's how a lot of it gets pushed around is because of these floods. It, it you know this water moves up, it contaminates the soil, and then it moves into people's basements, into their homes. So, yeah, it's an issue. But it makes me think of um, what was that whole like the PR thing with the corporations where they first deny and then they they put the blame on others until it gets so fucking bad where they can't deny it anymore. And I think it's just called public relations. <laughs> yeah. Well. I mean, this is gonna have to. This is gonna have to be full on like fucking huge fire for them to be like, "Oops, ah, uh, I guess you people were right." So this is just a disaster. It's already disaster happening, but it's a. It's gonna. It. I can't imagine it getting. You know, better. It's. It's gonna get worse. Yes, it's that's. Really just, what a fucking. What a fucking nightmare is. All I've got to say about it. The, eulogy for civilization. Fucking what? nightmare. Total fucking nightmare. Uh, and so this is just one of the many ways in the uh, little bingo card, you can get your scorecard out for collapse, uh, put being fucking idiots and dumpster fire uh, uranium explosions. I don't if you've got that on your card. Explosion, but I mean, that's going to be out. That's going to be put out into the atmosphere. And I mean, who knows how far that would actually travel. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing is, it doesn't need to be an explosion at all. It just is. They, and and so they talk about in there uh, that there are during the entire time they were doing this documentary, the time they were talking about it, and they've been working on this issue. Uh, they have been capturing uh, levels of all these uh, radioactive materials in the air at what they considered non-actionable levels. You know, the interesting thing about it is them collecting. Um you know, tests, doing testing around like people's yards and everything. Well, one, of course, EPA tests the area and they claim there's nothing wrong, but there's other people who do tests and it shows like the trees that sit across the street from this um, site are actually radioactive. But the funny thing is, is they claim that people that live very close to this site don't have any health issues, but there's a lot of people further out who have a ton of cancers like brain cancer like children with brain cancers and uh leukemia is real very very high le- levels of leukemia so i don't know if that's i don't know what that's all about but th- people they're not denying that people are sick like miles and miles from this but they're claiming that people that live close to it um don't have any health issues i don't know how true that is i don't believe it but well from the documentary it's categorically not true no i know no i know but i don't even like legit news sources that cover this topic keep claiming that people that live very close although they're like we got to get the people who live very close to it like within a mile they they want to they're trying to push for buyouts so these people can move but somehow they're not sick anyway i don't know how they can deny this shit it's they, they make money which is a big question. But but the, my whole point with even bringing that up is um, if this were to become a bigger issue and if it were to, you know, push up, if this were to cave in and, um, and the fire were exposed to, you know, oxygen and come to the surface, all that smoke is going to blow and it's going to go for miles. That, that, those toxic, the benzene, all the toxins uh, the, and the gas, gases and 
you know, all these particles are going to travel. This is, this is a pretty big issue. And of course, also not isolated. These are these kinds of things. When I was looking through a list of super fun sites um, in Missouri, there was, I think three or four of them that were related to uh, previous. And I, I, I forget exactly when it happened, but it, there's a lot of issues with dioxin and a lot of places, parts of the world naturally, but I know it's been an issue, environmental issue in, in St. Louis for a long time. Uh, but there was a, uh, dioxin emissions and uh, it, it looks like they had sprayed an oil residue onto horse racing facilities as a dust suppressant uh, which caused tons of contamination with dioxin and then they realized that that was an issue because all the animals died so they dug up those areas and then used them for building in other areas and those became super fun sites and then uh yeah, now some of those parks. More importantly, can we get some of that toxic shit, you know, for our roads to kick down some of the dirt in the summertime during the drought? Yeah, I know dirt's a real pain in the ass. I, I get it. It was worth it. It asthma. I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah, my eyes get a little itchy, so we better better throw some dioxin down on it. Yeah. Civilization creating all kinds of problems and coming up with very creative solutions. Which... This whole topic, I, I was curious um, to see the amount of Superfund sites across, you know, the United States. And surprise, surprise, I bet you wouldn't have guessed this, but New Jersey holds number one with the most um, Superfund sites, 116. Great job, New Jersey. New Jersey, keeping it real classy, is a massive trash heap officially. The East Coast is riddled with super fun sites it's it's pretty it's actually very very depressing yeah yeah so here we go so yeah the big question how much money do you have to make in order to be an asshole like these motherfuckers are i'll never understand it and uh i hope i never do uh yeah so fuck off motherfuckers and all these pieces of shit who want to talk about increasing uranium or increasing nuclear power especially the fucking leftists and liberals who think that, you know what, we we made some mistakes before, but hey, nuclear can be green. Well, eat shit, motherfuckers, because this is the shit that we all have to deal with. This is what civilization is. And you want to talk about all the benefits of civilization, and you want to talk about, you know, whatever, in long lives or prolonged lives and things like that. This is what you have to account for. How long are people being artificially sustained with fucking terminal cancers that were created for no fucking reason? Yeah, well, how how is that a way to live? I'd I'd rather, you know, why do you want to live longer life but get sick? It's just not worth it. Better dead than than fucking have to you know put up with this bullshit. So speaking of atomic energy and assholes, I want to read a little bit. We're going to talk a little bit about the Yanami, um, but I want to read a little bit here from my essay, Gathered Remains, which is the title essay of my new book gathered remains and it's also in black marine review number five uh so this is a bit from the section a shrine for old bones unraveling history uh and it goes on i'm, I'm gonna skip a part about uh anthropologists in general and talking about anthropologists uh and anarchism uh but i wanted to give some background on the anonymity here and I figured this is a good place to do it <laughs> In pulling on these strings, we do have tools at our disposal, and they are far from perfect. 
1938, both Nigeria and the Kalahari were British protectorates. The export of palm oil from Nigeria was increasing alongside the rise of plantations of cocoa, brought from the Amazon River Basin in the 1870s. In the same year, we have Kristallnacht in Germany and Adolf Hitler named Man of the Year by Time Magazine. And in Port Austin, Michigan, Napoleon Chagnon is born. Chagnon is an anthropologist. Like the other colonizers mentioned already, he's no less a piece of shit. In 1968, as the world was undergoing an era of revolution of thought and praxis, unweaving the narratives of civilization in some places and strengthening the resolve of an industrializing, globalizing world with socialist vigor and others, Chagnon was making headlines for other reasons. Carrying on the narrative-building legacy of civilizers before him, Chagnon unleashed his contribution to their cause, the ethnography Yanomamo, The Fierce People, a book that was and still is a standard in university classrooms worldwide. The Yanomamo are a, world of, are a tribe of horticulturalists living in the Amazon, on the border of what would become Venezuela and, and Brazil. The history here is unsurprisingly yet awfully familiar. Between 1630 and 1720, slave-hunting conquistadors decimated indigenous societies all along the Amazon River. In the 1800s, Westerners finally found an industrial application for the rubber sap that Christopher Columbus had brought back to the New World, or from the New World. The industrialists couldn't be satiated. The carnage unleashed during the Amazon rubber boom, first from 1879 to 1912, and the second from 1942 to 1945, in the words of anthropologist Ray Davis, was, quote, were nothing like that would have been seen since the first days of the Spanish conquest, unquote. Using the lightweight and easily maneuverable planes innovated by the Second World War, missionaries got another wind as their forebearers of colonization, clearing the path for a new wave of industrialists and civilizers to tighten their grasp on the Amazon. Before Chagnon showed up in the mid-1960s, New Tribe Missions, the Society of Jesus, and the Silesians had already been out to conquer souls for nearly a decade and a half. The savages, once saved, could make perfectly good workers. Salvation through wage slavery, perhaps even more telling, the existence of steel tools and other manufactured goods had already invaded the Amazon for some time, frequently beyond, even beyond the memory of the oldest informants. The stage was set. The routine was underway. The process of colonization doesn't demand the physical presence of the colonizers. Their technologies, their vices, their grains and alcohols, and most commonly, their diseases can do a lot of the legwork for them. Virtually everywhere that Westerners have gone, the tide of contact was cast far beyond their actual movements. And what became the United States, the demand for fur and introduction of trade goods, most notably guns, led to the complete decimation of entire tribes, hundreds of miles beyond the outposts of white colonizers. You could see it in Papua New Guinea. You could see it in New Zealand. You could see it further down the Amazon as it crept into what were, what were once parts of the Incan Empire and those who resisted it, the Yavaro. And you most definitely saw it amongst the Yanomamo. The Yanomamo are the like, like all slash and burn horticulturalists had warfare. Unlike nomadic hunter-gatherers, settled or even temporary settled societies, both lose their natural contraceptives that a nomadic life brings and the lack of property or group tribal identity that banned societies maintain. Outside of the intrusions of farmers and colonizers, for the hunter-gatherer, there is nothing to protect and no one to protect it from. On a certain level, warfare amongst horticulturalists is, level, is a leveling mechanism. It keeps expanding populations in check through a preference for male children, higher rates of female infanticide, and deaths from battlefield and raiding deaths. Preferable or not, it does have a certain degree of ecological and social function. Being social animals, we don't talk in terms of function, we talk in stories. Social tension is better explained through myth. The more people, the larger the community. The more central role myth plays. 
If neighbors start dying because of ecological pressures, it makes more sense to, for our, to our storied minds to blame people, namely other people. For the Anonymo, those are people are witches. As the diseases of Europeans spread throughout the Amazon, so did their guns and machetes. The Anonymo responded how they typically had, through warfare. Only this time, there would no lo- there'd be no level of ecological correction, no balance of carrying capacity to be found. The wound greater, the threat more severe, and the technology seemingly endless. By the time Shagnon had come to the banks of the Orinco River, an area already threatened by numerous colonial intrusions, he found what he expected to find in the Yanamo, a pristine, a pristine society far from civilization engaged in a Hobbesian battle to the death. Beyond being an anthropologist, anthropologist Shagnon is a sociobiologist. The imprint of sociobiologist spans across all of the sciences. It reaches back to the dawn of enlightenment, going back to Descartes insisting that the howls of tortured dogs were mechanical in nature rather than emotion, something reserved for humans. Hobbes, ever the philosopher, had given words to the ideology of the farmer. Our nature is nature, one that is fighting tooth and claw for survival and victory. Just like the unflinching pastoralists poisoning lions and killing bushmen without thought, like the shell paramilitaries shooting down protesters demanding clean water, we kill the nowhere alive. Shagnon was another figurehead carrying forth the narrative of consumable freedoms. You are nothing without us. We, the domesticators, keep you, the domesticated, safe. Play along, play dead, roll over. More myths for a captive audience. The, re- the reality was genocide. Shagnon went to the Amazon with his mentor, James Neal. The research was funded and backed by the Atomic Energy Commission. Their goal, to study the impact of disease and contamination on a pure population. Not only did Shagnon celebrate the warfare unfolding before him, but he directly contributed to it as he and his party literally injected their presence into the veins of this unfolding trauma. When his ethnography came out, it was, a, it was the force to combat the increasing radicalization spread throughout the social sciences and throughout society at large. The waters were already murky, but this is a narrative colonizers churned programmers wanted, the fear of their own savage nature. And then skip ahead a little. I lost my put a bookmark in the wrong place. Uh, so jumping ahead here, my point here and elsewhere is to show the links throughout time and place to find the strings uh, that go far and wide, deep and infinitely projected into space and pull them together. We don't exist in isolation, even if our entire existence is, or, sorry, if our entire experience of the world as post-industrial consumers is set up exactly to give us that impression. That means we take. We take the tools available to us and we dig. We use them against the system. We expose the lies of its narratives and the weaknesses in its armor. The continued prevalence of civilization requires obedience. Those who have faced its guns, diseases, and decimation on the, on the periphery have always stood against it. They still do. These strings are a link to not only understanding and finding them, but in pulling back the reins of an overgrown and hemorrhaging leviathan. This leviathan takes the form of Shell's paramilitary. It takes the form of De Beers. It takes the form of slave trader, rubber barons, palm plantation owners, oil prospectors, and missionaries. And it takes the form of Napoleon Chagnon. Marshall Salins, the, the anthropologist behind the narrative barn-raising Stone Age economics, speaks of the ferocity of the legends that Chagnon had left in the Amazon. Quote, Representations of him grew more monstrous in pr- proportion to the scale of the struggles he provoked, and even his trade goods were poisoned with memories of his death. Of death. End quote. The goods he left behind are viewed as black magic, the products of factory in Sabwara Wakishi, the deadly smoke of disease, which I probably just butchered. Mm-hmm. 
The charges against Chagnon, once exposed, were presented to the American Anthropological Association. Upon their investigations, they claimed that Chagnon had not violated their charters and protocols overtly enough to merit ex- exclusion. In protest, Solomons resigned from the board. The problem isn't anthropology, it is civilization. These tools can be used on all sides. The dust of old bones, the blood of new wounds, it all lies before us. Those strings, these fragments of time and place all lead to one place. And that is civilization. Spoiler alert. It needs to catch fire. So uh, that covers a little bit about the Atomic Energy Commission and the Anami, which are going to be, I think, a frequent returning point here, um, which, again, uh, anybody's got experiences with missionaries or book to recommend about missionary experiences. Uh, I am still very, very much in the process of writing my next book of gods and country, the domestication of a world of the origins of religion, patriarchy, and nationalism. Uh, and I probably will be sharing a little bit of that in upcoming episodes. I've got a lot, lot done on it. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I think some will probably be ready to share, but I'm, I'm not committing to that too much yet. Uh, but getting back to the subject at hand, uh, I know Yank had just read uh, Richard Wrangham's Catching Fire, which is a four-legged human. I don't know if I want to say favorite. I don't want to speak for them. Um, but fairly decent recommendation. Um, and, there, you know, I've got some feelings about Richard Wrangham. Uh he is the co-author of Demonic Males, which is an intrinsically flawed book um, uh, about trying to extrapolate patriarchy and men's persistent need to dominate the world. But uh, yeah, I know Yank read it, was reading it, and it kind of stirred up some things in her. Uh, so it's, it's not it's not the book that stirred things up. I'm just very curious about fire at the moment and how it's played a role in history of making us really um and speaking of the animami i just wanted to point out how um there's another book that i really want to read and this is one by william j smoley i don't know how you say his last name smol anyway it looks very fascinating and it covers the topic of the yamami um indians but anyway interesting it's interesting reading here that only adult males may make new fire and they alone own or use fire drills. Otherwise the children and the women, um, use old embers to create fires. I thought that was kind of fascinating anyway, which you know, are definitely a patriarchal society and a lot of, there's yeah. a lot of horror. You think <laughs> I've got a, I've got a feeling. Huh. Um, so, uh, you know, that's kind of commonplace and it is kind of weird with horticultural societies how, um, you know, as food goes from, you know, hunted and meat based to very plant based and, and garden grown. Um, you do kind of get this question about, I was like, well, you know, how much of the entire male complex and male supremacy complex is really just an inferiority complex for not really having a whole lot to contribute uh, in terms of subsistence. Uh but yeah, in terms of fire, it's it's one thing I always find interesting. And it's something that's been with, with us for a very long time, and I do agree that it has shaped us socially in a lot of ways. It's uh, it, it shaped us genetically in a lot of ways. I mean, that that's the thing about reading this is that, you know, I just, 
I wanted to know more about, um, especially with the indigenous people that lived here in like the plain, the, the Midwest and the Plains area. Um, I want to learn more about them because supposedly they had a huge role in the Plains fires and, you know, I don't, I don't know too much about it to speak of it, but I want to learn more. And that's where my interest is with fire because humans and fire go back a long time. Fire has always been here. And then, so we've, we've been using fire for a long time, millions of years is what I believe at least. Um, and so, you know, reading this, it just kind of dawns on you. It's, it's so fucking like, like, I don't know. I just kind of overlook it. I think it's because we're all, we all eat cooked food and, um, you don't, you don't think about how, wow, we're the only animal that can make fire and we're the only animal that eats cooked food, all of our food. Most indigenous people, people cook everything that they, there's some things that are eaten raw, but a lot of the food that they obtain, meat, uh, their starches, um, their, their, the food that they collect is, it's mostly all cooked. And, and so it's very interesting to think about how has that shaped us? You know, it's, it shaped us socially. It shaped us physically. It shaped us mentally. Um, so yeah, it's a very interesting topic really. And I do want to add to that, uh, you know, Yank and I obviously have, uh, some points of disagreement, <laughs> some, <laughs> some smaller than others, others much larger than others. Um, uh, four-legged human shared this article with, uh, the other black and green review editors and everything. Uh, it's, and it is interesting. I, I do recommend the article. It's from the Smithsonian. Um, if you look up Smithsonian, uh, the title is when scientists discover what indigenous people have known for centuries. Uh, and it's really just about, I'll read the byline here. When it supports their claims, Western scientists value what traditional knowledge has to offer. If not, they dismiss it, uh, which is a huge thing. And the article is by George Nichols. It was published published on February 21st, 2018. Um, and it starts out by talking about, I'll read a little quote from here. A team of researchers led by Mark Bonta and Richard Gosford. Robert. I'm sorry, Robert. In Northern Australia have documented kites and falcons colloquially, colloquially, oh man, I can't talk, colloquially known as termed firehawks, intentionally carrying burning sticks to spread fire. Uh, well, it has been long known that birds will take advantage of natural fires that cause insects, rodents, and other reptiles to flee and thus increase feeding opportunities. They would like, they would intercede to spread fire to unburned locales is astounding that they would, uh, which we also know that ravens do the same thing. And I'm sure other, other species do as well. Uh, so while the ability to make fire, which also not universal, uh, 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 hold up, hold up. Other animals take advantage of fire. And, and most animals have something to gain from eating foods that have been burned in a fire. There, you can absorb the calories quicker. But no other animal creates fire. We are the only animal that goes out and takes two fucking sticks, rubs them together, and makes fire. That's a pretty big deal. And we eat all of our food cooked. Most animals eat their 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 food raw. That's 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 a huge deal. Like that's something that shouldn't be looked like overlooked. So in, in in our in what you know, it's created us. It's made us who we are now today. And it, I mean, this book I highly recommend it. Catching Fire: How Cooking Made Us Human. I think that he covers uh, he he 
brings up a lot of interesting topics. A part the whole time I was reading it though, there was a part of me that felt um kind of frustrated. Like he's the way he sees things is kind of closed mind. I don't know if I want to say closed minded. I don't really know what word to use, but there's it's I don't know why. As though you had also written or co-authored a book called Demonic Males. Well, yeah. I, Sociobiological. I don't know. He, he brings up a, a lot of good points, though. I definitely think it's worth reading. But I don't know. I don't know how I feel about certain things that he mentions. I don't know. I just have to. Th- I, I guess I have to think about it more. Maybe do more research on the, on some of the, the topics he brings up. But it, it's a very, very, very interesting, good book. And it makes you think a lot about. I'm very drawn to the topic of food anyway. And so it makes you think a lot more about, um, you know, how that, how cooked food has shaped us. It's made us, it, I truly do believe that. I believe that we've been using fire for a very long time and it's created who we are. So going back 1.7 miles. So it's years. like that game. Hold on. It's like that game. You know, if you could go back in the past to destroy one thing that's helped create civilization, what thing would you go back? And, you know, usually you're like, oh, guns. Maybe it's fire. I'm just kidding. I know. Kevin Are did, you? Kevin, Are you? I just like to say it drives Kevin crazy. But anyway, whatever. Oh, it does. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, I think that we just, you know, I think I think us and fire, it's a, it's a beautiful combination. It's just we have lost responsibility. We don't, we've went off the fucking deep end. We, you know, yeah. So whatever. I think I think we can agree that splitting atoms was a, a, a little too far. <laughs> but yeah, I mean it's taken, and that's one of the problems you have when you look at a lot of the stuff. And uh, people ask about like, you know, well, where where does where do the origins lie? What were the, you know, people want to find a, the fall from grace or things like that. Um, and it's it's not always as simple and straightforward. Uh, and I definitely point more towards sedentism. I think that's much clearer point of departure um whatever that's <laughs> how is that not right, the case? whatever whatever well, it was fire it. it'll just be a huge argument over the fucking internet yeah anyway. that's what anarchist news is for so uh so they say so they say so we hear uh but um yeah the uh i mean it, it is interesting and i think that it's something that we can easily forget that even though humans do use fire and we do cook and uh, we have for an exceptionally long time by by all conservative estimates. Um, you know, the the ability to make fire is not universal. A lot of people carry uh, embers instead of being able to make fire. And even uh, into recent history, the Mabuti um, did not actually know how to to make fires. I think they were they were taught by uh, other people much more recently. Um, and it's an important thing too just because uh, there's so much stuff with the primitive skills world and everything like that to, to work on focusing on skills and everything like that. And not that it's not important and it is a huge thing. It is making fire is certainly empowering. Uh, and it is an awesome experience if you've never done it and you should. Um, but we kind of, you know, questioning that entire survivalist mentality. It's like, I gotta be able to go out and do this. And it's like, even though hunter gatherers didn't have many possessions, they certainly had very few, they didn't have nothing and they didn't lack community. Um, so it, you know, they, they just didn't see things in the same kind of survivalistic sense and they knew how to do all this stuff. But at the same time, it, it wasn't necessary for a lot of people to feel the need to learn how to make fire. If they could learn how to carry embers properly, 
which a lot of them did with uh, mushrooms, which is always fascinating. I'll always give mushrooms a plug. Wild mushrooms. You guys are fucking great. Actually, that's a good point about how a lot of indigenous people actually don't know how to create fire. They end up just carrying, you know, smoldering logs. But um, actually in this book, that Catching Fire book, there was a, a story about <clears throat> seven Siriono hunter-gatherers arrived, you know, um, let me just read, read it. In more ordinary circumstances, starvation is a rapid threat when eating raw in the wild. Anthropologist Alan Holmberg was at a remote mission station in Bolivia in the 1940s when a group of seven Siriono hunter-gatherers arrived from the forest. They were so hungry and emaciated that, as one of them told Holmberg, if they had not arrived when they did, they might have died. This group had been part of a band that had thrived in the rainforest until they were taken to a government school. They had been so resentful of their forced removal that they had escaped with the aim of returning to their ancestral homeland. To avoid capture, they had moved fast, walked even in heavy rain. Without proper cover, the smoldering logs they were carrying were extinguished. After that, the little group was reduced to a raw diet of wild plants until they were rescued after three weeks. They walked less than five miles, miles per day, and even though they knew the forest intimately and found raw plants to eat, they still could not obtain sufficient energy from their diets. Two of the men had bows, and there was lots of game, so they might have done better, but for a taboo on raw meat, which they claimed not to eat under any conditions. But even hunter-gatherers often live well with little meat for weeks on end, as long as they cook. The Siriono experience suggests that raw diets are dangerous because they do not provide enough energy. But the whole point is, is they knew how to cook, or they knew how to hunt, but they didn't know how to create fire. So... I think, you know, a lot of people don't know how to create fire, but we do rely on fire to cook our food. And there are taboos in a lot of indigenous cultures against um, eating raw, raw foods. And also another thing is, too, um, a lot of foods can't even be eaten raw. They have to be processed and they have to be cooked, you know, namely a lot of, you know, tubers and certain plant foods they just cannot be eaten raw sorry raw food is just not cutting it i think that's where that's coming from uh but yeah I, it is is an important point and also again perhaps to certain degrees and we'll learn more about it over time uh it might be a little more like the firehawks than uh than we know but uh it's yeah it's interesting and i guess it's uh something you've got questions about and you want to bring up more mm. in the future mm. mm-hmm. yeah but it's interesting um there's a lot to learn about fire it's every you know it's funny fire is everything it's i mean all of civilization depends on fire and, and you know in a way to to keep running and we depend on cooked food to keep running it fuels our whole entire fucking life but <laughs> there we don't understand we don't understand it we don't we have no clue really how big of a part it actually plays really on on a what do you say biological level or i would i would say even on a social level we definitely all, take yeah. we take it for granted and we just yeah. assume that you know you can turn on a light switch and there's gonna be lights yeah and that's not gonna last very much longer so it's a it's really to me that i, I really am fascinated by fire at the moment and i think it's an interesting topic and i would like to bring it up more later maybe on some other future podcast we'll, we'll see mm-hmm. the future's unwritten right mm-hmm. <laughs> great <laughs> maybe civilization will collapse tomorrow 
You never know. Maybe civilization will collapse tomorrow because of this podcast. I mean, I mean, really, truthfully, it's actually collapsing now, but maybe it'll actually come to a complete. Probably not, but hey, a girl can dream, right? And a girl can spit fire. <laughs> and search chuckle. <laughs> oh, great. So, uh, yeah. Um, I guess that's, is there anything else you wanted to discuss? Here? Nah. No. Enthusiastic, nah. nah. So, um, yeah, if you have questions or anything you want to discuss, you can email blackandgreenpress at gmail.com. There's information as well on the um, website, blackandgreenreview.org, under the podcast subheading, including, if you feel generous, ways to donate. Um, I did get some good follow-up, some good feedback, um, and some people having some suggestions about things to cover a little bit. Uh, I do get caught up from time to time in very long correspondence. If I have not written you back, do give me another push. But times like now when I'm doing a lot of writing, um, I fall behind a bit more than usual. Uh, Black and Green Review number six, we are looking for submissions. We have the deadline set for uh, uh, August 1st or September 1st, one of two. Um, but it's never too early to get stuff in, especially if you got stuff that we're going to discuss. We do go through the editorial process. We take it very seriously. Uh, so sometimes that can last for quite a while. It's better that we don't get everything at once. So if you have something to contribute and that's in the essays form in the discussion, it can be a letter. It can be something more open-ended uh, reviews. And of course, uh, field notes from the primal war. We are always looking for more there. Uh, but in terms of suggestions for the podcast, I did get somebody uh, bring up a good question or a good point uh, about having more stuff about uh, primitive skills, uh, more, I don't know, technical aspects. I, I don't know how to describe that better. Um, Actually, I think, I think one podcast that I would want to do at some point is on the topic of humans and diet. <laughs> That's always a fun one. It gets people nice and heated. I love it. But um, I think that would be kind of fun, especially if you kind of do a podcast about that and primitive skills. Agreed. And I've, I've talked to Yank a bit about that. She's a, a bit of an expert on the subject. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm a food enthusiast just as much as anybody else, so whatever. Yeah, yeah and I like eating so much. I, I do it daily, <laughs> sometimes. Uh, so in terms of how to have that discussion – I don't know. I'm not sure what it looks like yet. And I'm, it's ironic for somebody who writes to be like, I don't know how you discuss that subject. Um, but if you have more specific questions about it, that'd be great. Uh, and, um, I guess I just think if, if you're going to listen to a podcast on, you'll probably watch a video, but realistically, I don't know. Uh, yeah. Go so, outside. So how to, how to make like, how to do primitive skills. That's what someone wants. It seems like it. Maybe it's just an ASMR thing. <laughs> maybe, yeah, maybe me describing, and this is how you notch a fireboard. Maybe there's somebody that likes that. I don't know. Well, actually, no. I, I could see maybe someone wants more in-depth, you know, speaking of fire, on how to make a bow drill or hand drill, maybe certain wood types. Hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of things that can be done. It's just hard for me to think about it without some kind of visual element. Uh, I'm not mocking the idea by any extent degree i'm just mocking my simplistic approach to it personally uh in terms of those ideas but um yeah something that could be great and uh 
again, at some point here, I'll figure out and take the time to learn how to do the actual interview stuff where it's not just a person sitting next to me sharing a microphone. Um, so uh, we'll have more on that in future episodes, but if there's anything else you want covered or discussed, again, you can email us. Uh, and uh, yeah, I guess that's it for this episode. We'll, we'll be talking to you more in the future for sure.